Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Eric K. Washington in New York City. On each episode, we talk with a biographer about their work. On this episode, I interview Columbia University journalism professor and prolific author David Haydu, along with painter and cartoonist John Carey. David and John collaborated to create A Revolution in Three Acts, the radical vaudeville of Burt Williams, Eva Tanguay, and Julian Elting. Their book, A Graphic Group Biography, was published by Columbia University Press in September 2021. David Haydu's previous biographies, notably Lush Life, a biography of Billy Strayhorn, and Positively Fourth Street, The Life and Times of Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, Mimi Baez-Farina, and Richard Farina, were conventional, text-driven narratives. So I asked David what compelled him to write a biography that was not just illustrated, but in a graphic format. We decided to do something in graphic format before we decided on the subject matter. John and I met in college at NYU, and we had in mind for years to do something together one day. So we spent some time hatching ideas to what would work. And we're looking for something that needed art, where the art wouldn't be, you know, ancillary or secondary. And I had done some writing on Tangway and Williams for a previous book. So they were on my mind to come back to. So we started knocking around, what if we did something in vaudeville? And John could talk about why that appealed to him. And we saw that this exploration of identity was something they had in common, and that led us to Elting. So we thought, okay, well, now we have people in a similar thematic terrain, but very different. Okay. John, so what was the appeal about doing something on vaudeville for you? I think David and I both felt that vaudeville had sort of gotten a little sugar-coated in history, I think the rock and roll generation sort of relegated vaudeville and almost everything before it as something kind of corny. But David knew quite well that there were serious issues going on there. And then as we moved ahead, we realized that in a visual form that these three talents of Burt Williams, Julian Elting, and David Tangway really weren't captured just in descriptions. I think David could have written a great book about this, another one of his great books. But when you read about Ava Tangway, I mean, it's like reading about a volcano or a, or a hurricane. You, you sort of want to see some visuals of this wild woman who took over vaudeville and shocked people. And the same is true with Elting in a completely different way, because I was mystified by this female impersonator. And David smartly shows the audience reaction, wondering, okay, what's this guy about? And then they're smitten by this uh, complete contrast to Ava Tangway, this, this Victorian beauty of uh, Julie Nelting. And then Burt Williams is a complex person. And I think we capture some of his genius uh, later in the book in, in one of his famous pantomime skits of his card playing act. So I think it lent itself to visual storytelling. I should interject to say we're a couple of generations removed from vaudeville. So tell us briefly what vaudeville was. Yeah. 
was roughly from the last decade of the 19th century into the third decade of the 20th century. But at its peak, it ran from around 1900 to 1920, a period of about 20 years. And it was the beginning of mass entertainment, popular entertainment in America on a national scale. And it was national, even though it was local and it was live because the performers traveled around the country. And it was entertainment geared to anybody and everybody. So it was kind of democratic. What drew us to it was the realization that it was much wilder and crazier and freer than we had thought from the portrayals of vaudeville on like sketches in the Hollywood Palace in the 1960s with Bing Crosby twirling a cane and doing a little soft shoe with a straw hat. It was much stranger and in some ways much more serious because it was uh, made mostly by immigrants for immigrants. And as a result, a lot of the content dealt with issues of what it meant to be American or what it meant to be Irish or what it meant to be Black or Italian or Asian or Chinese. In other words, what it meant to be. In 21st centuries, we talk about it as identity politics. And it was absolutely at the heart of the performances. So we know Burt Williams did blackface and we never talk about that enough because it's so disturbing, you know. But there were also white face performers and yellow face performers. And there were acts parodying Italians and Irish. But what it meant was, America was changing, was becoming much more complex, ethnically, uh, racially, and socially. And this group of people were trying to figure that out. And they're figuring it out in entertainment for people like them. So that's one of the things that really attracted us to the story. And that's that's the heart of the story that we sought to tell. Ah. The book title invokes the words revolution and radical to suggest how these performers changed public attitudes about race gender and sexuality. What was so compelling and radical about their respective artistry? I guess I could start with Ava. Uh, David, of course, is the architect of this book, the writer, and uh, he storyboarded it all. So he'll correct me if I'm wrong. In the beginning of the 20th century there, we had these two people presenting wildly different forms of, uh, of what femininity is. Julian Elting was portraying kind of a holdover of Victorian beauty and uh, sensibility. But then along came Ava Tangway to uh, just throw a huge monkey wrench into this with absolute wildness and sexuality. And people must have just been agog at this, uh, this wild woman on the stage. David? Yeah, let's start with Elting you were talking about a second ago. So he did a portrayal of the feminine ideal as it was constructed in the Victorian era. You know, femininity as a presentation of like grace and submission <laughs> and, you know, capitulation to male dominance. Not in those words, you know. Uh, we would look at it now and say, oh my God, this is really regressive and offensive. But at the same time, Audiences knew that it was a man doing it. Men were finding themselves attracted to this figure on stage, who at some point they're realizing was a man. 
and they're confronting their like male attraction to someone who they realize is the same gender. And both men and women are beginning to see that gender can be constructed, that a burly man's man can make himself into a graceful female. So he established this idea that gender is a fluid, malleable thing, that anybody could be any gender. It's like, holy cow. It's like in 1910, but we think of that as a, such a 21st century thing. And it is in terms of the way we think about it. But Julian Elting was there early. And then Tangway? Eva Tangway came up in the Victorian era, but defied every value of the Victorians. She represented a new kind of woman. In fact, it was called the new woman. Uh, muscular, energetic, independent, sexually adventurous, and sexually independent. Absolutely radical. There was nobody like her at the time in a position of such prominence. So was the number one leading attraction in vaudeville and defying every value of the Victorian era. It's hard to even grasp how significant that was. Like everybody in the country was seeing her, they're all talking about her and what they're seeing is a new kind of womanhood and what they're talking about is a new conception of what it could mean to be a woman. Mm -hmm. And Burt Williams was radical in a much more subtle way because he's born in the era of minstrelsy, not that long after the Civil War. He's born in the 19th century and he's relegated to performing in blackface, but he does it in a way that pushes against blackface. So at the same time he's doing it, he's transforming blackface and he's bringing a new level of humanity and subtlety and nuance to blackface, which at the time was considered radical. It's hard for us to quite understand how radical that was, right. but the idea of the black man standing there not and not just doing the step and fetch it kind of, uh, parody of every black stereotype, but defying those stereotypes was radical. And we give a lot of attention in the book to what Burt Williams and his partner, George Walker, did behind the scenes. They produced their own shows. They had their own payroll. They groomed artists. Burt Williams co-wrote or wrote much of his own material. So they were leading figures in the black world at, at the time as people who, you know, who developed talent. So again, three radical figures. Indeed. John, you're also driving the subject's narratives in framing the story's visual rhythm and pace. Is that accurate to say? Uh, yeah, I think so. David gave me a great roadmap. He storyboarded the book and uh, I added to it. Yeah, we did it in a little unusual way in that I started as an illustrator, and then my first things I had published were illustration, so I can draw, but there are none of my drawings in the book. But I did what cartoonists call the breakdowns or the storyboards, which are the designs for the pages and the designs for the individual panels. And then John made them good, <laughs> you know what I mean? and more, much, much more than good. But in terms of the pacing, how we slow down and linger on the moment when Julian Elting and Ava Tangway come together and they have a mock betrothal on stage, we're able to use the grammar of comics. We alter the size of the frames. So now instead of having three levels of small panels, we have two big ones and the action slows down and we zoom in. So we're able to linger on a moment using the visual vocabulary of comics. Comics gave us a kind of license to dramatize events that aren't documented. 
We know, for instance, that Julian Altang collected antiques. But we can have a few comics panel where he's shopping for antiques. And you know, we don't know what he said to the salesperson, but we can imagine that and give life to the historical fact that he shopped for antiques. And readers know, oh, that's in a comics panel and they're word balloons now. So they take that to be a reenactment. Something like seeing the reenactments in a documentary from something from the 18th or 19th century, you know, you know, you know it's not Jane Austen or Miller Fillmore, you know, in the film because it's a convention of the of the form. So comics have this convention where we're free to dramatize events. I can't resist a, a vaudevillian setup. Uh, Bert Williams, Ava Tangwe, and Julian Elting walk into a bar. Okay, not exactly, but. You do convey some occasions where these artists actually cross paths. Were you already aware of or hoping to discover such instances? Well, we needed them for the book to work. In that period, maybe close to a year, when we're researching this idea and seeing if it would work, we're looking for how much did they interact. It wouldn't have worked if they never met, actually, because it, it was still three people in the same world. We found a great deal we didn't know, particularly about Elting, but also Williams's life is better documented. And we found quite a bit we didn't know about uh, Tangway. John and I went together to the Lincoln Center Library for, for the Performing Arts, and we went through scrapbooks that were in repository there. And in some cases, we opened the twine and unwrapped scrapbooks. There were two scrapbooks that we were the first people to ever open and look at. At the, at the Lincoln Center Library for Performing Arts. We're going through the materials and this, something happens when you hold them in your hands and you're researching these, these materials. And we discovered some interrelationships that we had no idea. For instance, uh, there was a theater called the Julian Elting Theater, which still stands. But neither one of us knew going in that what would have been Burt Williams's final performance was scheduled to be at the Julian Elting Theater. And this was organized by the person who was Julian Elting's manager. That's not a huge interaction, but we found a number of them. Oh, when Elting decided to go into vaudeville, it's because he saw Walker and Williams. Oh, Tangway and Elting were in this different productions of the same show. Whoa. So there's a lot of interaction. Yeah, that, yeah. So it was quite fun to find those connections along the way. Yeah. What was your working relationship like? Was there a lot of back and forth? Uh, we stopped throwing things at each other a few weeks ago. No, the, uh, David would give me a batch of pages, about seven pages or so, and I'd work on those for about seven weeks. He would give me the text, and he would also give me the breakdowns. So I, I'd receive this material, and then uh, I think we found out quite fast that it was going to go okay, because... It wasn't like he would say, you know, you know, throw those pages away or throw half those pages away. It was more tweaks of individual panels. And that would usually not take more than two or three days. And then he'd send me the next batch of seven or eight pages. And we just worked that way for two years. In such a, an intimate collaboration, did your roles ever interchange? For instance, David, did you suggest images like you have to draw this or... John, did you suggest, David, you have to write this text? You know, I actually did a sketch for every panel, you know, <laughs> so that's the way we work. The hardest part about this, I think for both of us, was that in working in this form, we don't, we didn't have 
the privilege of revising in the same way that when you're writing, you know, you're writing uh, Boss of the Grips, you could after a while say, maybe I went two pages too long in that year. And you go back and cut them or you could add. Once we had these pages drawn from the beginning, we pretty much had to stick with them. And knowing that from the beginning was, was a burden, you know, because we, we had to map out the entire book in the first months so that we wouldn't be in a position of having to go back and throw pages out and redo things so that it would work. So we actually mapped out the entire book from beginning to end while John is making the first five, 10 pages. Yeah. And your, your book relates a cradle to grave biography times three, yet at only 176 pages. How did you do that? Well, I came up admiring Pinter and Beckett and so, reduction is important to me. And I have another life as a lyricist and songs. I write songs with Rini Rossis, a jazz composer, Rossis. And, you know, you really have to reduce and reduce and reduce in that form. And, I, you know, I've always valued uh, saying one thing and implying two or three other things through reduction. So we had to be tight that one line could say as much as two pages of prose. And this is a book that you could read two or three times. And I think if you go back and say, oh, I, I didn't kind of see that at first. So, oh, I see, I get what they're implying here because that really matters later, you know? So we both embrace the form. And I think John was really happy to not have to draw one more page because there's a lot of work to do what he did. If it were not a graphic biography, just entirely text, could you have accomplished what you did in that way? Or was there a certain um, advantage overriding just a textual biography? It would be very, very different. And we wouldn't be able to bring the kind of life to it that we could bring to it now because, you know, we're able to dramatize some events and do, treat them in dramatic form. We don't know exactly what Ziegfeld said when he sought out Burt Williams and invited him to join the Follies. But we could give that life in the comics form. So I don't think in prose alone, the book would be quite what it is. No, I think this was the, the best way to do this. John, there are other graphic biographies. I'm thinking uh, Winston Churchill, Malcolm X, Anne Frank, Amelia Earhart. Were there other graphic biographies that inspired you? In terms of style, our crumb illustrated a Kafka biography, and that had certain urban uh, applications of penmanship that I borrowed. And uh, that was the main thing I looked at. But to pick up a little bit on what David said about the unique form, we have a spread in the book, for example, about what Ava Tangway was singing as opposed to her very staid and conservative contemporaries. And it's a funny couple of pages you know, while Elise Baker was singing, I love you truly, uh, Ava Tangway was singing, I want someone to go wild with me. And we can show these two performers next to each other. Billy Murray is uh, very uh, gently saying, come take a skate with me while she's belting out, go as far as you like. So I think that uh, David took advantage of comics to make parallels like that in a fun and, and really dramatic way of showing, you know, why our principles were so unique. Mm. When researching these three, how did the available material balance out for them respectively? We worked mainly from news clips 
of the time and from programs, from performances and the photographic record and material and various archives. There are historical archives of vaudeville all over the country and most of those holdings have been digitized now. So I was able to you know, tap into them in New York. And so we worked mainly from primary materials. Uh, I read over the biographies of Tangway, it's a superb biography of Tangway, brilliant book about uh, Burt Williams, Nobody, and Ann Charter's work on Williams is extraordinary. But we tried to not draw so much from the other books on uh, Tangway and Williams and work from the ground up, you know, and tried to get as close as we could on the ground. There are also some oral histories of vaudeville and various holdings, including one at Columbia University about, you know, 100 yards from where I'm sitting as I talk to you right now. So I went through them also. Fortunately, even though we did some of the book during the pandemic, we started this book years ago. We did most of it before the pandemic, but some of it into the pandemic. Uh, Many of the holdings that we needed are available online. And a number of the others in archives that we had access to before the pandemic. Mm. So, yeah, we were fortunate that there was enough. After we finished, somebody self-published a book about Elting. So our book is done and I got it afterward and I was kind of nervous about it. So he said, oh, wait a minute, this person's devoted his life to Julian Elting. And fortunately, didn't find any, you know, anything wrong in ours. You know, there's some more detail on this and that, but nothing that, you know, contradicts our story in a significant way. John, in creating the subject's visual impressions and contexts, was there equal ease or, or difficulty with any one of them as opposed to another? Well, I kind of understood Ava Tangway's appeal. She was just wild. But I was really wondering, you know, and I said to David, I don't get Julian Elting. I don't understand how he became such a huge star. But luckily, David kind of came to the rescue with that because he smartly showed the reaction of a young couple in the audience. And the, the wife is saying, is this all he does, just kind of pose in these clothes? But she starts to see the attraction of the clothes. Meanwhile, her husband is just like falling in love. And uh, I laughed out loud at that part. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's completely smitten. And Elting must have had some extraordinary power to portray this ethereal beauty. And of course, the reaction of the husband changes is when he pulls off his wig, but he's still stuck with that charm. <laughs> so, and then I think with Burt Williams, you know, I tried to follow David's lead as the intelligent lead and sensitive lead of how he handled everybody here. I think we show Burt Williams dealing with what he's trapped in a couple times in, in a way that shows his pain. Early in his career, he's humiliated on stage. He has a panic attack. Meanwhile, the, the wide audience is, is, is uh, in hysterics, thinking this is even funnier. And I think we show just what he's trapped in as a Black performer in that time. You know, what are the choices of a, somebody wanting to enter entertainment as a Black American? Well, you can shovel manure in the circus or go into minstrelsy. Uh, and then later in the book, there's a poignant scene where Williams goes to his library in his house 
and he's trying to figure out, you know, where he belongs in American entertainment because there's been a, an actor's strike and nobody told him about it. He, he got made up. He went to the theater and the theater's empty. Nobody's there. And he realizes he hasn't come that far since that early day uh, on stage where he felt so humiliated. At that point, I, I literally wept, you know, as I was going through that scene. Oh, yes. Well, David said this will be one of the great scenes of the book. Did taking on a graphic narrative influence your usual methods of writing, drawing, or researching? Oh, absolutely. I mean, for me, it was really completely different. Unfortunately, I made a study of comics for my, my third book, The Ten Cent Plague, which is about comics. So I get comics grammar. So I, I sort of understand like what you can say and what you could say uniquely in the language. But what it called for above all was reduction to the essence, which is very, very hard to do, but the stimulating challenge. And I think it was a similar challenge for John. But what I'd like to hear John talk about is how different it was for him to be doing line drawings because John is primarily a painter. So John, how different was it for you? Well, I, I had done editorial cartoons, but that's only single panel cartoons. And so I needed your expertise for the narrative aspects of the book, but the book was very rich because it allowed me to do so many different things. Because like you said, we not only slow things down now and then, for example, with Burt Williams and Eddie Cantor entering a bar and Williams being treated shabbily, there's all sorts of things. There's sheet music to depict. There's the films that all three were involved in. There are also just some funny things like Julian Elting's imagining his great athletic prowess, you know, pushing Teddy Roosevelt aside on the football fields of Harvard University where he never played football, things like that. So David gave me a very rich assortment of things and very serious stuff too, you know, racial violence, as well as documentary things like the uh, image of uh, Burt Williams' funeral, so wildly different than messing around with paint and knowing you can paint over it or throw it out. Were there any real surprises that came out of the process? I was surprised I finished the darn thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a frog. I, so over five years of working together, I guess, it was only about a month when I think we could have killed each other. <laughs> What's your advice to first-time biographers or biographical collaborators? Find David Haydu. <laughs> love your subject find a subject where it had to be that person and the biographer had to be you Gus Kahn lyrics with all your faults I love you still so confront the faults embrace the faults but love your subject and then of course one of the main things I drive home to my students is research do your research if you'd like to talk to two people find 10 you know if there's a book on the subject read five so research and John uh, yeah, I agree with everything David said and uh, emulate the best as an artist, uh, steal good ideas, pick and choose your approach. And then if you're lucky enough to get a collaborator like David, then that's nine tenths of the process. That was David Haydu and John Carey speaking with me about their book, A Revolution in Three Acts, The Radical Vaudeville of Burt Williams, Eva Tangway, and Julian Elting, published by Columbia University Press in September 2021. This interview was recorded online via Zoom on September 29, 2021. To learn more about BIO, or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, 
biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Eric K. Washington in New York City. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening, and have a wonderful day. Thank you.